Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping in today, Dr. Donna Holland Barnes. Donna is a certified grief recovery specialist, a certified life coach, and author of The Truth About Suicide, part of the Truth About series for middle school and high school students. She teaches suicide risk management to third-year medical students at Howard University's Department of Psychiatry and serves as CEO of her company, DHB Wellness and Associates, which provides suicide prevention training, grief recovery, and life enhancement to help individuals move through major crises. Welcome, Donna. Thank you for dropping in today. It's so nice to be here with you. Hi, Callie. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with the concept of grief. Um, Historically, grief has been associated with the sorrow that people experience around death. More recently, the word is also associated with collective painful experiences, including racial injustice, the coronavirus, natural disasters, political divides, as well as the individual traumas that people face every day. And I'm curious what you consider to be the most important types of grief people need to recognize. Well, I think in general, grief is anytime you are trying to uh, understand a loss. Whenever you lost something, it doesn't matter what it is, but when you lose something major in your life, that's that's a part of your life. You have to sort of go through a process to get through that loss, such as during COVID, we lost a lot. We lost mm-hmm. our freedom. We lost the ability to hug and to talk to people closely. We lost, you know, movement. You know, when you, you go to work, you come back, you don't even go right home. You stop at the supermarket, you stop by some friends and, you know, you're moving. And we lost mobility. And that meant a lot to people. People didn't understand what they were going through. Some people said, gee, I I think I'm depressed because the symptoms for depression and grief are are almost identical. Mm. So people were getting that confused and think along, I'm depressed, I got to go see a doctor, I got to take some medication. And grief, you just need to roll with it. You know, I, I just want people to understand that because they're not sleeping, because they're anxious, because they're having um, problems remembering or understanding things, and they just need to sort of take care of themselves and, and try to be as healthy as possible. Get some exercise, get that blood flowing before they feel that they have to rush to go see a doctor and get some medication. So that actually leads beautifully into my next question, which is in your experience, do you think that people are conditioned to minimize what is considered to be less severe versions of loss? Oh, sure. Relationship, a job, often you minimize it because you're comparing it to somebody down the street going through that other thing. Absolutely. Because in my support groups, they'll minimize who they lost, even in the support group. Well, I just lost my boyfriend. And I know that Carol lost her, her son or that Bob lost his wife. And I just lost my boy. You know, don't, minimize that the fact that you lost somebody that you were close to the pain is the 
is you can't compare pain and and don't do that to yourself um just to talk about com comparisons and you know if people have lost someone through a divorce if people had lost a house their job same thing same thing and you know in a with what's going on in society, it just seems like a lot of organizations are imploding. Uh, CEOs are stepping down. CEOs are getting fired. Directors, you know, and that's hard to deal with. Like, you know, we just had a good colleague who had to, uh, was fired from the directorship of, you know, this great organization that we were all a part of in reference to suicide prevention. And that had to hurt. Because she didn't understand it. She didn't know what she was going through. She didn't know why. They didn't even tell her. So, yeah, you can't minimize loss. We, we really shouldn't. You know, I'll joke around and say, look, if you lost your shoe, that's important. You know, <laughs> if someone's crying and upset about it, that's important to them. I think that's very uh, validating for people to hear it. it seems as if that is a pretty pervasive thing, the minimizing thing, even the ex example you just gave, which leads to people losing their identity or their definition of themselves. A absolutely, absolutely. Like the CEOs or the directors, that, that's their identity. That's their whole life, you know? Yeah. Thank you for using that word. You're welcome. And you, you don't hear people uh, attaching the concept of grief to that sort of premise as often it seems. Is that your experience as well? Yes, because they feel like they have to grieve alone. Nobody wants to hear that. You know, also, oh, big deal. You lost your $250,000 job. You'll get another one. You're smart. And so they have to grieve. They have to grieve in silence, in silence, because people... Just, unless it happens to them, they don't. They just don't get the the severity of that loss. What would you suggest before we get to some of the deeper versions of your work and versions of grief and loss? What would you suggest to people, or what would you like to see happen in society that might make it safer for people to validate all these different versions of grief? Well. You know, we hold our life experiences that we're not that proud of secretly. You know, we don't tell anybody because we're afraid that they're going to pass judgment on us. Oh, what did she do? And this, that, and the other. So we have to be very quiet about some of the things that we lose because we don't know how people are going to interpret it. We don't know what people are going to say. We don't know. You never know what people are going to do with information, period. You know, if you say I went to Burger King, I don't know what people are going to do with that information. So, <laughs> so restorative telling is just something that I like to work with. I want people to talk. I want people to say what they need to say. I, I want people not to hold back and just share. Your work with suicide prevention and trauma has been at the center of your career. How has the way society handles the topic of suicide changed over the last, say, 10 years, do you think? Um, 10 years, not so much. 30, yes. 
because when I when I got into this business, I I I got into it. I fell into it. It wasn't something that I was seeking as a child. I want to get into suicide prevention. You know, I want to go to school for it. It was something that I had never even thought of. I lost my son to suicide in 1990 and did not know anything about suicide. knew nothing about it. And at the time, you know, I was. Um, kind of in my early 40s and you know how you kind of have two t- kind of careers at least three in your lifetime I was moving into a whole nother career and I wanted that to be uh, law so I was applying to law schools because previously I was in the insurance industry and I wanted to sort of connect the two and get into legal contracts so I was really um, working on passing my LSAT and applying for um, a couple of different law schools and I was actually waiting to hear from them. And when I lost my son, I mean, my whole life just shifted. It just churned. It was never the same again. Um, and I and I need for people to understand that when your life changes, when you lose someone that you, that's, when you lose a family member, a loved one to suicide, it knocks you off your feet. You you never um, go back to who you used to be. It's like a Mack truck just hitting you and knocking you 20 feet. And then you get up and you got these broken bones and, you know, you have to adjust to this whole new you. And adjusting to it takes time. It takes understanding. And so what I was doing to understand suicide and what it was all about, I started reading and reading and reading. There weren't that many books, so I had to really search for them. And the more I learned about suicide, the more I was trying to understand it. Um, And I also talked. I don't know why. (laughs) It's like I didn't even care what people thought. I was just talking and telling Oh, my son took his own life. My son took his own life. I even had a family member said, Auntie Donna, why do you keep telling people Mark took his own life? Why did you do that? And I think I think while I why I was doing it was because I wanted and desperately needed somebody to say the same thing happened to me. I lost my uncle. I lost my mom. I lost I just needed to hear that. And I didn't. I, I couldn't seem to get be around or meet anybody who had experienced what I experienced. I was so alone. My family was there to support me, but they didn't know what to do with me. I needed to talk to somebody who was who survived a suicide loss like me. So I think that's why I kept talking about. It. I was waiting for somebody to say, "Oh, me too," and I and I wasn't getting there. But anyway, so as I'm reading and reading and reading, I said to myself. I might as well get credit for all this reading that I'm doing. So I stopped thinking about law school and went back to school to work on my doctorate. And I wanted sociology. I specifically wanted sociology. You know, when I think about this, I don't know why I specifically wanted it, but I didn't want psychology because Suicide is more than just an emotional thing. There's too many of us to suffer from uh, mental disorders and depression and emotional things, and we don't kill ourselves. Only a small number kill themselves. It's more than that. 
When you want to think about suicide, it's much more than that. It's society. It's the things that are going on around you. It's all types of things. So I wanted to look at suicide from a sociological perspective. You know, even in in listening to you talk about this, um, your loss and this topic and how you fell into it, creates an approachability that sort of inherently destigmatizes the topic that has been so stigmatized for so long. So it, it helps me to even understand more easily why you have been, you know, approached and, and looked to for yeah. just energy around. It seems like it makes it more approachable for, mm-hmm. for lots of, you know, lots of other people that you help. Looking back in the rear view mirror for when you were trying to find your way through your own loss and grief, and now knowing what you know now, are there one or two things that stand up if somebody had taken you aside and told you? Um, that's kind of hard because when you're not actually experiencing it, then you're still going to think the way you normally think. Because as parents, we just think we know our child. And if someone says, no, your child likes red. No, my child likes purple. I know my son. Don't tell me about my son. And so whatever they tell you, and if it doesn't sit well with you, you, you're not going to listen. You're not going to listen to it. Number one, if it's something that um, in reference to their behavior, you might take it personally and think that you're not a good mother. And so you deny, 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 and don't listen to it. Um, And that resonated with me because I had a friend that said, Mark looks very lonely. I think he's lonely. And I said, what are you talking about? He has a lot of friends. He's at a, he's at a Red Sox game right now as we're speaking with all of his friends. And, you know, I, I knew that you can be lonely in a crowd, but I wasn't thinking in those terms. And I, and I didn't bother to say, well, what do you mean? Tell me more. I didn't bother to say that. I just brushed it off. I said, what are you talking about? He's got a lot of friends. He's at a ball game right now with his friends. So I, I wish that I had listened to this particular person that said that. Can you speak to the exponentially growing numbers of suicides in the U.S. these days? Uh, and I'm also curious about your thoughts on the difference between biochemistry versus circumstances, how mm-hmm. each may contribute to suicidal ideations and tendencies. Yeah, I, I think we had such an increase in suicide because when I got into this uh, arena, it was like 29,000 people a year. Now it's up to almost 50,000 a year. So it has increased 33% in the past 30 years. It's, it's just amazing. Why has the increase? Who knows? Who can really put their finger on it? We're not really looking at the right things. But I will say one thing is that the question to me is why are we so bad at preventing suicide? Why, why can't we do that? We have all these organizations. We have all of these tools to prevent suicide. Why, are we so, why can't we save people? Because they still keep killing themselves. Uh, the government has poured money, more money, more money, more money to look at this and look at that, look at the brain. And they're still killing themselves in very high numbers. So I think we're looking at the wrong thing. I think we equate it too much with depression. Suicide and depression 
People think they're synonymous. You go to a doctor, tell them you're depressed, they're going to take off their prescription bed. Okay, all right, well, tell me, and how long has this been going on? All right, well, you need some medication. Especially if they say they're suicidal. It's immediately depression, immediately a prescription is written. That's not what the issue is. The issue is that they are thinking of death as an option. You know, they don't want to go on. They don't want to live anymore. They are having problems having hope. That's what you talk about. That's what you tease out. How did you lose your hope? How did you lose your your belief system? How do you no longer think about how much your family is going to suffer if you go? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. So that's what they need to do instead of taking out that prescription pad and, and writing a prescription on depression. They might not even be depressed. They're just having issues with how their life is right now and how their life is turning out when they had such great expectations. So that's one of the reasons we could possibly be having such high rates of suicide because we're not looking at the right thing. We're focusing on the wrong thing. And then the other question that you asked me was the difference between biomedical and social circumstances. I like to say public health, but I think the word has changed now to social justice or what have you. They're always changing, always changing the language. Who are these people that are changing the language? How do they have so much power? But anyway, I guess my previous answer about why it's going up tells you how I feel about biomedical. I have had discussions with psychiatrists. I have had psychiatrists say, no, they have a mental disorder. If you think about death, you've got a mental disorder. You need to be, you need to, and it needs to be treated. The mental disorder needs to be treated. So if they've never had a diagnosis, we need to search for that diagnosis. Treat it, medicate it, and then they won't think of suicide. So I, I'm not for the biomedical because there's honestly other reasons that people take their own life other than the fact that they suffer from a mental disorder. Because a mental disorder is supposed to distort your thinking. Thinking of suicide is never a rational thing. It's distorted thinking. But they have made it in their head rational. I can't go on. I have no purpose. This doesn't make sense. I don't see it. But they just need to talk about it. They just need to talk about why they're feeling this way and get that out before you start searching for a mental disorder or writing a prescription. So I'm hearing it's um, that you're a proponent more of the preemptive and preventative attention paid to these conditions versus reactive once somebody is showing great signs of absolutely radiations or whatever that reframe is so powerful too. the idea of focusing on the fact that people consider suicide an option and that hope is so inextricably tied to that how 
do people begin or professionals in these fields or parents or friends begin to restore hope for their loved ones that might be in trouble? Just let them know that I don't know what you're going through, but you're not alone. I am here for you. If you need someone to talk to, let me find you a therapist. Let me find you a good therapist that that can listen. If you don't want to tell me, maybe you'll tell a therapist. But let me find one for you. Or will you let me bring you to a therapist? Or maybe you're it. I'll listen. I I can listen. And, And to do just that, listen. Don't try to solve the problem. Don't try to share your experiences with their experiences and compare them. Or I had a neighbor that went through the same thing. Just listen to what they're saying. Don't respond. Only time you should respond is if they say something that you don't quite understand. And then you say, well, help me understand that. And then sometimes just talking about it. It's like you got this balloon and you stick a pin in it and it deflates. It's like, I got that off my chest. Oh, my God, thank you for listening. You've helped me look at this differently. But what you're doing is you're restoring hope because they've lost it. And you're just restoring their hope. It's it's not all gone. might not be the way you want it to be, but the hope is still there. You know, and sometimes just reminding them, what would your mother say if you did that? Uh, what would you, how would your child live for that for the rest of their lives? Sometimes just reminding of that, because once, once they get into that thought of suicide, they're in this black hole and they can't get out. Because people in my group can't understand that. Huh? How do they do this to me? How do they do that to me? Because they weren't thinking about you. They weren't thinking about you. They lost all thoughts of the people who love them. There's that term, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yes. And it feels like such a great irony that based on what you just shared, that just the stigma or silence around the topic of suicide can often exacerbate it. Yeah. The prospect of it. Do you think that it would help the numbers and the suicide rates in the United States, if something as simple, and I certainly don't want to minimize this experience for families and just how deep it can be, but do you think one fix or contribution to fixing the problem would be if families just became more comfortable talking about this topic? Is that too um, it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. It's a very complicated issue because there are people who argue that if you put too much focus on it, it's going to put, you know, people are going to start normalizing it. You know, kids talk about it all the time and you've got 13 reasons why. And, you know, the poetry, the songs, you're kind of normalizing it. And it's really making some people step back and say, well, Adam, I understand you guys are trying to prevent it, but. It looks like you're normalizing it more than anything else. And so you have to kind of balance it. Um, I just think that families need to be aware. They don't have to talk about it. They just need to be aware and question somebody that they're worried about. I mean, it can be as simple as question whether or not a gun is safe in your home for protection or whether somebody might use it to take their own life. 
you know, I mean, you think, well, my gun is locked or I have the, you know, I, they're not going to really put the bullets in another room or hide the bullets because if they really needed an emergency, they're going to keep it right there. But they're going to, you know, they make up excuses that, you know, the gun is locked. But, you know, kids know. They know how to use a gun. They know where to find a gun. They know all of that if a gun is their choice. So just making sure there's not anybody in your family that could be on the fence, could be thinking about it. But even, I never knew my son was even thinking about that. So I would have never questioned him about it. I'm sitting up here saying we need to do this and paying attention to our family members. He showed me what he wanted to show me. Kids are very um, resourceful when it comes to masking their true feelings. Right. So it's hard. And especially if they're teenagers, you don't know if they're being typical or they're being troubled. You don't, how, how do you do that? How do you figure that out? So I might make it sound like it's just do that with your family and question this. It's not because, again, we don't know if they're being typical or they're troubled or they're masking. They're masking. They're not showing you how they really feel because they love you and they don't want to hurt your feelings and they don't want you to feel guilty. Or worried. Yeah, right. Or worried. So they're not going to tell you anything. They're not going to tell you anything. So it's hard. I believe I read something recently that spoke to the idea that children, teens are apt to share some of their darker and more troubled feelings with friends more than they are parents and teachers. Speaking of masking, is that true? And what would you suggest we do as a society in terms of waking up peers to being more aware of flagging issues with their friends? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very good point because we know this. We know that they'll tell their friends before they tell an adult, a responsible adult. And the first thing they say is don't tell anybody. And the first thing the friend does is listen is they don't tell anybody. And I always say, would you rather lose a friend and save a life? You know, so, so tell, you know. And my my granddaughter, when she was in the, I guess, fifth or sixth grade, a friend, uh, her, one of her classmates just blurted out, I want to kill myself. And so my daughter, my granddaughter just didn't know how to respond to that. So she told her mom. She went home and told her mom. So my daughter, her mom, called the school and said, I want you to know that, you know, Jane Smith had said this in class. And my daughter came home and told me, so I'm telling you. They called the parent and said, this is what your daughter said in class. And the parent says, well, how do you know she said that? Well, she said it to Zara. And Zara went home and told her mom. So her mom called us. The parent calls my daughter and says, don't you ever. She says, if my daughter ever says anything, you call me. Don't call, you know. And so my daughter just said, oh, my God. The school handled it so poorly. 
they handled it so poorly. They should have left my daughter out of it. They should have left Zara out of it. And how do you know the mother wasn't the cause of her saying that? The school just didn't want to have anything to do with it. She was on the school grounds. The school should have taken that and dealt with it and talked with the young lady. But anyway. So where's the learning opportunity here with the story? The learning opportunity is that take responsibility where it is. And first of all, my granddaughter did the right thing. She told an adult that this child said something. It's just that the school needs to take more responsibility and shouldn't have skirted it and handled it that way. Because it doesn't have to be divulged where you got the information. The only thing that needs to be um, addressed is the fact that your daughter said it, etc. I've read that there have been staggering increases in suicides among the Black community, especially Black teens. And I wonder if you can explain this crisis and what you'd like society at large to be aware of or do to help. Um, so there were several of us who are in the field of suicide prevention and intervention among uh, people of color. Um, we got together and we wrote a report about it and made some recommendations on what society needs to do. Um, about this increase. And this report uh, we called Ringing the Alarm. It was spearheaded and sponsored by Congresswoman Bonnie Coleman Watson. She wanted us to get together and write the report. And so we made some recommendations. And IMH got a hold of the report and he said he wanted to meet with us. What can we do in reference to funding? And we told them we want to look at suicide among our own people. We don't want to do control groups, comparing. We just want to do some, some um, in-focus population resource, research that just looks at suicide among young Black males so that we know, we know why they're doing this so we can at least pinpoint. We don't even know their zip codes. We don't even know if they they come from intact families or divorced families or single parent homes. We don't know if they're educated. We don't know anything about these young black boys except the fact that they're beginning to think about it. What needs to be done is is our our communities need to pay more attention to it. Get trained on how to recognize the signs when someone's in a suicidal crisis. Churches need to be very robust in discussing this type of thing among their parishioners, so that they don't feel that it's a sin, or they don't feel that if they don't read the Bible enough that. People aren't going to take their own life. They, they need to dispel all these myths about how religion will keep you from killing yourself. doesn't necessarily do that. A belief system helps you, but it's a little bit more than going to church every Sunday and reading the Bible. So churches are a, a staple in our communities, and so we like to start there. Can you speak to the increasing suicide rates touching younger children overall in recent years? Across cultures? Yes. Wow. And does that beg the question that we need more risk assessment programs in schools, which I know you work very yeah. 
part. Yeah, I, I just wish the schools would take more of a um, part in, in, in this suicide prevention. I, see, I, I, I'm not so certain that suicide is trending. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so certain it, it's, it, it could be a trend to think about it, to talk about it, and to, I don't know, I mean, there are packs, there are suicide packs among these young kids, but I wish I knew why the increase was was so high. Um, it could be the availability of drugs because a lot of it is overdoses. Um, uh, I, 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 I can't even answer that question on, on why young kids are killing themselves at higher rates than they did when I was growing up. Can you speak to what you'd like to see inside of our societal infrastructure, be it in our communities, in schools, in churches, wherever, just as the next step in risk assessment, suicide prevention, awareness, increasing? Uh, I would like to say that. I, I would like to say, oh, we need, we need more risk assessments. We need we need this, we need that. But if you just teach coping skills, because we we need to reach these kids while they're young and we don't want to go suicide, suicide. We need to teach them coping skills. We need to teach them that life matters. We need to teach them those kind of things so that they don't think death is an option. So that they know how to cope with things. Because it's very hard to prevent something that can happen at the spirit of the moment. You just don't know because the vulnerability has to be there. The method has to be there. The impulsivity has to be there. And the fearlessness, the fear of not caring whether you die or not. Once those four things line up like lucky sevens, they're gonna. They're gonna. And... We might have thought we had done everything. So we just don't know. Suicide is inevitable. So this is why I work closely with families who have lost someone to suicide. Because there are millions and millions of families suffering every year for suicide. And um, they need to be cared for. Because suicide is inevitable. It's going to happen. What can you suggest to people that are listening to this podcast that might experience suicidal tendencies in their family amongst their communities or loved ones? What kind of conversations can they have to guide these people through? Um, if they think there's somebody in their family, a friend, a colleague, a fellow student, a neighbor, that they're concerned about, it would be really great if you could take that person aside and you know have have a nice quiet place, at least about an hour, um, and just say, you know, I've noticed that your behavior has changed. I've known, you know, all the things that make you feel that this person might be thinking about suicide, just list them. And I'm a little worried 
because generally when people go through what you're going through or say the things that you have said or do the things that you have done, sometimes they're thinking about taking their own life. I'm just wondering if that's what you're thinking. And you got to say in a way that you really sort of have empathy. You got to have empathy and listen. So it goes back to what I was saying before. We've got to listen to the person and let them talk, not try to solve the problem, not anything. But you got to let them know that you trust. they can trust you because they're not going to tell you, you know, you're in an elevator and say, hey, you know, you know, let me talk to you for a second. Up the elevator is coming. But, you know, let's, let's talk. They're not going to, they're not going to, you've got to really let them know that you're not going to pass judgment on them because that's what they're afraid of. They don't want you to pass judgment. They don't want you to tell anybody. But, you know, they're still trying, there's still a little bit of pride left. They're trying to hold on to that. So if you can't do that, if you have your own biases in reference to suicide, find somebody who can. Find somebody that they're close to and say, you know what, I'm really worried about Gerard. I'm just so worried about him. And I don't think I'm the one that can talk to him and get him to talk. So do you think that you could help me, help him, or talk to him? So if you can't do it, find somebody who would. What advice do you have for someone who's mourning the loss of a loved one by suicide? And how can people mourn well in general? I would like for people to consider a support group to be around others so that they can know that they're not alone and they can see that their feelings are validated because people share their stories. In my groups, people share, people talk. And it's a safe place. They can tell whatever's on their mind. Um, and if it triggers somebody, they, you know, we ask that if they want to turn the camera off or leave the room, they can do that. But that's what I would like if it works for them. Support groups aren't for everybody. I had uh, someone who just said, I, I, you know, every time, you know, the Zoom support group is over, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's, it's horrible. I, I don't like the feeling that I have. I'm crying and crying and crying. And I said, well, let me keep coming. But I keep crying and it's awful. It just brings up all of this emotion. And so that person is not a support group person. That person would do better with a one-on-one -on -one with a grief specialist. So it's not for everybody. But if they can join a support group, that's, that's my number one suggestion. Finally today, I have uh, three questions that I like to ask every guest here on Dropping In. The first one, I'd like to grant you one wish for our listeners. What would it be? Oh, boy. One wish for the listeners is that they are open-minded um, and don't have any expectations of your co-worker, your family member, especially after going through COVID, because people have just changed after COVID. And just meet people where they are. Meet Meet them where they are and try to sort of 
understand. That's all. But meeting people where they are. What is something you wish for yourself? For myself is to continue helping people. I mean, in servicing and just enjoying life. I'm, I'm at that part of life now. I'm at that, I'm at, you know, I'm 73. So I'm, you know, I don't know how much longer I have, five years, 10 years, who, who knows? But I'm really enjoying it. And I think um, I just want to continue to enjoy it because I'm doing whatever I feel like I want to do. Finally, what is the most important offering you'd like listeners to take away from our conversation today? The important offering that I'd like for them to um, more or less make sure it's in the schools because we talked about the suicide rate among young kids. Make sure it's a part of the curriculum. Make sure that uh, kids understand coping mechanisms. I think we really need to focus not so much on suicide, but it's more on coping mechanisms and sort of get some sort of curriculum involved around coping mechanisms. And they do some stuff like they have circles, safe circles for kids and they put them in the circles. And I sat in a couple of those and all it is is like, how was your weekend? And da 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 da. Anybody have any problems? Oh. It's nothing. It's not. You're not really getting to the meat of what these kids are going through. And it's run by people that they don't even feel like they can trust. So make sure that the school has a safe place for these kids to talk about what they want to talk about. So I want to thank you so much, Donna, for spending this time today with me. It's been such a pleasure and so informative. So thank you so much. If our listeners would like to learn more about you, where can they find you? So if they want to Google me, Donna Holland Barnes, they can Google me and see the papers that I've written. You know, people will put stuff up there when I, you know, speak or something like that. But that's probably the best thing. I don't have a web page, but all of my accolades and everything I've done, I'm kind of humble. So before we say goodbye, is there are there any crisis hotlines or suicide prevention numbers that you'd like to offer? Well, the the main the main number would be one eight hundred two seven three talk T A L K or two seven three eight two five five. That is the um, national suicide prevention hotline, and. They give you an option, press one if you're a vet, press two if you're a, a civilian. And what that does when you call that number doesn't matter what part of the country you are in. It, it immediately connects with crisis center within your zip code that you're calling from. Thank you. Important information. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. You are so welcome. The Dropping In Podcast is provided for informational purposes only and not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. If you or someone you know is struggling, please do call the hotline Donna mentioned, 800-273-TALK. Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps New Year's find us. Dropping In is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. To learn more, visit eomega.org slash membership. 
and check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in. 